0: We have been in a series called Game Changer, and we've been taking a look at the life of Christ through the eyes of the people whose lives He forever transformed. And we've seen Jesus in a whole lot of different ways and and facets throughout this study. And this morning, we're going to take a look at the 11th chapter of John, and we're going to take a look at this theme, Four Days in Paradise. Who would think that a candy bar could be the focal point of a game-changing moment? especially for one by the name of Percy Spencer. By 1939, Percy Spencer was one of the world's leading experts in the design and the creation of radar tubes that are called magnetrons. Uh, With the outbreak of World War II, the U.S. made developing radar, uh, one of their top priorities, as well as other countries around the world. And Percy Spencer was responsible for, for changing how all that was done through his research and through the laboratory. They were building, at, in 1939, 17 magnetrons per day. By uh, close to the end of the war, that output had become 2,600 per day. As a matter of fact, for his work, he received the Distinguished Public Service Award from the, from the U.S. Navy. One day, while Percy Spencer is working uh, around one of these uh, l- radar sets and magnetrons, uh, the, the, <laughs> the candy bar in his pocket melted. Now, most of us would find that a great loss, and it was a gooey mess inside the pocket. We would have been disappointed, but it put him to thinking and then further experiments and thought, what is it about this radar thing that is creating this? And so, he started taking other foods. He took popcorn in there. It exploded all over the laboratory. Uh, an egg blew up in one of his co-workers' faces. And by 1945, the company Raytheon that he worked for had patented what was called the radar range, or what we call our microwave oven today. And you thought candy bars were bad for us. (laughs) It was through that candy bar that became a game-changing moment. You see, sometimes game-changing moments come when we least expect them and in ways we simply cannot anticipate. I believe that the ultimate game-changing moment in the ministry of Jesus Christ came in the last couple months of his life. And it came in a way that was least expected and in a fashion that no one anticipated. Now, we know that Jesus met multitudes of people. He healed uh, hundreds, fed thousands, but we don't read about Jesus having very many close friendships. Uh, There were a handful of apostles, obviously, But in addition to those, we we only read of a family that seems to be incredibly close to Jesus. It's two sisters and a brother. They live in the community of Bethany, and their names are Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And in their home in Bethany, we find that Jesus took respite from so many of the trials and the struggles and the tough times of His earthly ministry. John chapter 11 opens with this story that Lazarus becomes deathly ill. And when it becomes apparent to the two sisters that Lazarus was not going to recover under his own power, the sisters send word to Jesus, and this is their message, Lord, the one you love is sick. Now, I, I'm impressed with the sisters. They don't say, oh, Jesus, hurry up. Lazarus is getting close to dying. No, they simply say, Lord, the one you love is sick. They didn't even ask him to come. They just knew with his compassion and the friendship that Jesus would do something. And then down in verse 5, John writes this. He says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And so we know this was a strong bond, a friendship, a friendship. That, that, that was greater than most of the relationships he had in this world. Now, I know most of you, probably if you've grown up in church, you know what the story is in John chapter 11. But because familiarity oftentimes keeps us from seeing these beautiful twists and turns in the story, I'd like to ask you to, to, today, see if you can just separate yourself from what you already know. I want you to pretend as if you're going through these last few days with Mary and Martha in the community of Bethany. If you can't do that, then listen as if you are hearing this story for the very first time. That with every turn of the road comes something that says, "Oh, wow!" Because I'm telling you, there are some really interesting things. There are, there are some twists and turns in the story that are hard to explain. And the first one is simply this when Jesus got the message, He didn't go. He stayed another two days where He was on the other side of the Jordan in an area called Perea, His best friend, and He didn't go. That's, that's hard to explain. Uh, the second twist that's really interesting is the message that Jesus sent back with the, with the messenger. Now, you know, the messenger, it took two days for him to get from Bethany to where Jesus was, and it was going to take him two days to get back, and and Jesus sends back this message to Mary and Martha. He says, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. So the messenger leaves, two days to get to Jesus, gets the message from Jesus, two days to get back. It's four days now. What a disappointing message this was. The the, the messenger gets back to Bethany and he's ready to report what Jesus said and lo and behold, Lazarus is dead. He gives the word to Mary and Martha. They must have been confused. They must have been despondent. They must have been disheartened. How could Jesus have been so wrong? This, This is blatantly wrong. Our brother is in the tomb. And so I'm sure they tried to work around, what does he mean? What does he mean? And I think what they finally concluded was that that Jesus meant this figuratively, that that Lazarus would be alive in heaven, don't worry. But what they took figuratively, Jesus meant literally. Now, the disciples, on the other hand, were were pretty, pretty pleased that Jesus didn't want to go back. Okay? Of course, they didn't know how sick Lazarus was at that point in time, and they weren't anxious to go back to Jerusalem. They had been there just a few days before in Judea, and they had been at the Feast of, um, of Dedication, and they were… Uh, uh, so distraught because what had happened was that Jesus had incited the anger of the religious leaders to the point that they'd picked up stones. They were going to stone him to death right there in Jerusalem at that point in time. And Jesus and the disciples were able to slip away and they crossed over the Jordan into Priya. Now, I want you to understand real quick, please understand Jesus isn't running away scared and hiding. He just was the right time. It was not at the Feast of Dedication that he was to pay the sacrifice. It was going to be at Passover, about two months from now. Uh, Jesus wasn't pulling away so he could give courage to the disciples to get them through. No, this was God's timing. Jesus slipped away because God always does the right thing at the right time. All right, so timing is everything. They said it's not fear that's going on here for Jesus. Now, when the invitation comes... And the disciples said, oh, we don't want to go back there. And so, they're glad that Jesus doesn't go because the disciples knew that to return was to put themselves in harm's way. So, the, the, the messenger leaves Jesus, goes back two days, gets back into Bethany. And about the time the messenger ends up back in Bethany, that's when Jesus turns to his disciples much to their chagrin. And he says, okay, it's time to go back. We're going to go back and see Lazarus. And and he says, Lazarus is asleep and I'm going to wake him up. And the 12 immediately begin to raise objections. They'll kill you if you go back there. They'll kill us if we go back there. And they're suddenly filled with fear and anxiety and hopelessness. And then they reason it this way. by the way, Lord, if Lazarus is asleep, that means he's getting better. He'll be well soon. Why do you want to go wake him up? Now, it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus was using the term sleep as a euphemism for death. That was a very common euphemism in that day and time. Jesus had used it more than once. But but the disciples, here's the irony. This time, the disciples take what Jesus said as literally, and Jesus meant it figuratively. I think they are hoping against hope. We do the same thing. We, we, We use euphemisms for death. He passed away. She's gone home. He's crossed over. And there's dozens more, you could say, because what we do is we try to soften the harshness of death. When's the last time you just blurted out, ah, she's dead. He died. We we, we just don't do that. We just, we kind of recoil at that. And and so, Jesus is, is trying to soften it for Lazarus is asleep. And so they get it all confused and so in verse 14 it says, so then Jesus plainly told them, Lazarus is dead and for your sake I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe but let's go to him. And they're thinking, what? You're glad that you weren't there. He's dead? I don't get this. And so they are scared to death going back into this land and they fully expect this return into Judea to end poorly. John 11:16. 16, then Thomas called Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Don't you love this guy? Oh, the courage and the greatness of Thomas here. I love it. With conviction and faith, he says, if Jesus is going to go back and die, I'm going to go back with him, even if it costs me my life. It's ironic. This trip does end up in a cemetery. Thomas couldn't have known that when he said this. It ends up in a cemetery in Bethany, but the end of the story is unlike anything they expected. May I suggest to you that we ought to be willing to let certain things die to know Jesus better. May I suggest that within every one of our souls there ought to be a cemetery where we bury things that ought not to be living in us. To to place in this cemetery such things as dishonest practices, slanderous gossip, hateful attitudes, bitter unforgiveness, unfaithful vows, self-centered arrogance. Take a stroll through the graveyard of your soul and read the tombstones. What's missing there? What graves are missing? What needs to be buried in that cemetery but is not? It is still alive in your life. What else needs to be buried so that you can live more fully in Jesus Christ? How full is the cemetery of your soul this morning? And so with much anxiety, Jesus and the twelve began their two-day journey Back to Bethany. Okay, back in Bethany, Martha and Mary are juggling all kinds of emotions, sorrow, confusion, deep disappointment, maybe even rejection and anger. On those days before the messenger had returned, don't you wonder how many times that they had walked to the end of the lane and scanned the horizon for the person they knew would come just at any moment. How many whispered conversations had they had with their brother Lazarus while he lay dying saying, hang on brother, hang on, Jesus will come, he'll be here soon. How often did their prayers speed to heaven's throne only to remain unanswered? How many times did they cry out to God only to be met with silence? How would you have felt if you had been best friends with Jesus and this is how He treated you? Maybe the better question is, how do you feel when you scan the horizon for heaven's mercy and faithfully pray for heaven's intervention and yet it does not come? You ever feel betrayed or hurt or hopeless? Are even angry? Do you ever reason like this? I have lived all my life for Jesus. I have tried to follow him at every turn. I've tried to be the best person I can be. Where is he when I need him most? I can't help but believe that Mary and Martha felt that way. And when Lazarus died, folks, hope began to die with him. I know what they're thinking. Because they've seen the miracles. They know what Jesus has done. Oh, if Jesus arrives while Lazarus' body is still warm and in the bed, maybe he'll raise him like he did the daughter of Jairus. But Jesus doesn't come while he's still warm in the bed. And then they're thinking, but maybe if Jesus will come before we get him to the tomb, like the boy from Nain whose widowed mother was following him to the cemetery and Jesus raised him from the dead, maybe he'll raise Lazarus too. But Jesus did not come. With every passing moment, hope faded. Day one, no Jesus. Day two, no Jesus. Day three, no Jesus. There was a pervading cultural belief at that time, folks. It, it was believed in the Jewish community. It may believed in other places. The cultural belief was this, that when a person died, their soul, their spirit hovered near the dead body for three days just to make sure that something wasn't going to happen to bring him back. And when the decay really began to set in, on the, set in on the third day, the soul went home to God and all hope died. On day three, no Jesus. On their third day after Lazarus' death died, Mary and Martha, their hope died as well. The messenger, I I just know the messenger who came back with this word from Jesus Christ must have concluded, Jesus' words are not true, period. Mary and Martha must have concluded, he's not coming back when we need him the most, period. Thomas and the disciples must have concluded, we're going to die with him on this trip, period. Period. But I'm telling you this morning, never put a period where God places a comma. They weren't at the end of the story yet. When you cannot see beyond the moment, it may appear that there is a period in your life story, but I'm telling you that God is the God of the comma when you cannot see what tomorrow holds. Don't put a period where he places a comma. So I'll ask you this morning, where are the periods in your life? I'll never find another job, period. I'll never get married, period. We'll never be able to have children, period. I just don't fit in at work, period. I can't go on without the one I just buried, period. Never, never put a period where God has placed a comma. Your story isn't over yet. By the time Jesus arrives in Bethany, Lazarus has spent four days in paradise. And when word reached the house that Jesus was on the way, Martha hurries out the lane down the road to meet Him. And this is what we read in John uh, chapter 11, verse 21. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, I can only speculate, folks, on her tone, but I suspect her tone was a mixture of disappointment and mild anger. If, Lord, if you had been here, Can't you see the brokenness, the hurt, the anxiety in her heart? And then her words soften. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, oh, I know. I I know he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. You see, I think she's thinking back. Those were your words that you sent. We interpreted them that way, that he'll rise again in the resurrection, that he's in heaven right now with the Lord. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Martha, do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she said. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into this world. At first, Martha thinks Jesus is simply expressing sympathy. But it's not sympathy here. He's giving her hope. He's rebuilding her trust The word resurrection from the ancient language is the word anastasis, literally, which means to stand up again, to get back up after you fall down. We get the beautiful name Anastasia from Anastasis, and it means one who is hoping in the resurrection. Jesus is not some prophet anticipating a far-off resurrection of the dead. He is claiming to be the living resurrection. He states that he doesn't just believe in the resurrection, that there will be a resurrection. He says, I am the resurrection, that the power of life again rests in His person. Do you believe, Martha, he says, and this wonderful confession pours from her lips. John writes on, And after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and he's asking for you. And when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and she said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. The exact same words. Don't you know they had been saying that for the last four days? Oh, if Jesus had just come. But if Martha spoke her words to Jesus' face, Mary cries them at his feet. Three times we meet Mary in the New Testament, and she's always at the feet of Jesus. The first time she is sitting and listening at the feet of Jesus. Here on the road, she is crying at His feet. And in just a short time, they're going to have a celebration feast for Lazarus. And at that particular feast, she worships at the feet of Jesus and anoints His feet with expensive perfume and tears. Notice the response. Martha's moment with him appeals to his reason, but Mary's moment touches his heart. In all of our study of the life of Christ, we have never seen such emotion in Him as we see in this moment. In verse 35, or 33, it says, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, He was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid Him, He asked. Come and see, Lord, they said, They replied, and then it says, Jesus We miss miss so much in our English translation. The text here, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled, is so powerful. The first word has more to do with anger than it does with sorrow. It literally means to snort like a horse. When a horse snorts and paws at the dirt, it means he is worked up, he is angry, he is ready to attack. The second word means agitated like a storm-tossed sea. This is not Jesus in sorrow. This is Jesus in anger. He is angry at death and he is angry at Satan whose deceitful cunning continued to ravage the lives of the people he loved so dearly. He is on the attack against our enemy. As he approaches the tomb of Lazarus, his emotions stumble again. He weeps. The shortest verse in the Bible is long on compassion. Could it be, could it be, that what he saw reflected in this garden tomb was a graphic reminder of what was lost in the very first garden. And could it be it was a dreadful vision of the cold, dark garden tomb? He would have to enter to reclaim what sin had destroyed. There he stood, the resurrection and the life, weeping, tears streaming down his face. God was crying Can any picture be more assuring to us in our weak moments? Ken Geyer writes, he says, what an incredible Savior, weeping not just for us in our sin, but with us in our suffering. It is remarkable that our plight could trouble his spirit, that our pain could summon his tears. Don't miss that moment. He gathers his composure. No longer does his voice falter. There is power in his voice. Take away the stone, Jesus said. Martha, oh Lord, no. He's been dead for four days. The smell. They surely thought he must have wanted to go in and see the body. But Jesus did not enter the tomb. And he speaks next with a voice of defiance, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? And then Jesus prays to the Father. It is not a prayer of permission. It is a prayer of affirmation for what was about to happen. This prayer confirms that Jesus is God in the flesh. In the silence of that moment, I think all of creation suddenly comes to a standstill. I think you could have heard a pin drop in the dust outside of the tomb of Bethany. And there stands Jesus, the open tomb, everybody wondering what in the world it was going to say. And then suddenly, in a loud voice, the voice of the creator of life himself, Lazarus, come out. And you hear the sound from inside the dark tomb. If there is a humorous moment in this whole scenario, it is now. Because Lazarus has been buried and wrapped with strips of linen all the way up. He's probably got about 75 pounds of spices and ointments all over him over these last few days. And the only way he could come out would be like this. Some historians said he hopped out. I mean, you know, and everybody is in stunned disbelief to the point that Jesus says, don't just stand there. Take these things off of him. Let him breathe. Let him move. They are overwhelmed. Oh, my God. Goodness, what a game-changing moment. The professional mourners are now out of work. The robes of sorrow give way to party clothes. The celebration begins because not even the decay and stench of death is too strong, too great for Jesus to overcome. I so wish we knew what the conversation was that night in the household. Can't you hear Martha and Mary saying, Oh, Lazarus, Lazarus, tell us what's it like four days in paradise? We don't have a word, not one word in the scripture of what Lazarus experienced in those four days. Actually, if there's a loser in the story, it is Lazarus. When I mean, you stop to think about it, He'd, he was home in heaven. He, uh, he had it all. Four days in paradise and he has to come back here and he has to die all over again. <laughs> this was not an ultimate resurrection. This was to show that Jesus has power over everything. Lazarus has to die again. And you say, "Oh, well, what does all this mean for me? Oh, please remember these. Remember that God is at work in your life for the greater good, even when silence is the response of heaven to your prayers. When you think God does not answer, no, He is still at work in your life. And remember His tears at the tomb of Lazarus are proof of His compassion for you at every moment of your life. And remember, the only way you're going to get out of this world alive is if you know personally the great I am the life and the resurrection. And remember, if he can raise the dead, he and he alone is the Savior. You cannot walk away from this moment, folks, indifferent. This is a game-changing moment. This is the dividing line. If Jesus did not raise Lazarus from the dead, then everything else is a hoax and a lie, and we might as well close the doors, sell the building, go home, and live the rest of our lives in hopelessness. But if he did... If he did take this man who was dead for four days and raise him back to life, then there is nothing he can't do, and everything he said is true, and he and he alone is the Savior of all humanity. And you cannot say, well, it's a nice story, and then go on indifferently. different You can't do it. This is a dividing line for you, and you've got to decide who is this game-changing Jesus. What do you believe about him? You see, <laughs> Let, let, let me wind it up. Living by faith is always easy when you know the rest of the story. Twice this week, in two different settings, I've heard the same quote from Soren Kierkegaard. Life must be lived forward, but it can only be understood looking back. You see, whenever I read the 11th chapter of John, I find myself saying, oh, be patient, Martha. Hang on, Mary everything is going to be just fine, just fine. Just wait till the end of the story. But you see, you and I cannot see beyond the moment. And when we cannot see, the grief can be overwhelming. You see, Jesus could have hurried to Bethany. He could have healed Lazarus before he got off of his cot. He could have saved Lazarus four days in paradise and Mary and Martha, all this grief and the disciples' fear. But how great of a loser would we be had he not done it this way? We... For the last 2,000 years would have missed the greatest moment in his life, and we would have missed those terrific words, I am the resurrection and the life. He who lives and believes in me will never die. Our gain came at the loss of Lazarus, his expense, but I'm here to tell you this morning if all I ever knew about Jesus Christ was what I read in John chapter 11, it would be enough. It'd be enough for me to glimpse his unconquerable power, to feel the depth of his unquenchable compassion, to hear the words of eternal hope. He is the one who will eventually raise my lifeless body. He is the only one who will save my lost and worthless soul. And he's the only one that'll raise you and save you as well. And what and once and for all, once and for all, he shattered for all time that hope dies on the third day. No, what Jesus said was that hope really begins to live on the third day. Listen to me carefully. We live our lives here like Mary and Martha lived those last four days in Bethany. We seldom see the rest of the story in this world. We question God's love, his promises, and his hope in our crisis moments And that is why John chapter 11 is so important. Even when He's silent, He's listening and answering and working. Even when we cannot see Him on the horizon, He's coming. Mary and Martha were only a few verses away from a game-changing experience that they could never have anticipated. Don't ever forget that at your lowest point in Christ, you're only a few verses away from a new ending and an altogether glorious conclusion to your story that you can't even begin to dream or anticipate. Oh, people, don't ever put a period where God has put a comma. Do you know the resurrection and the life this morning as your Lord and Savior? Today, please today, make that choice for Him.